The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn with me in your Old Testaments to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12, we'll be taking our lesson from this text this morning. It's wonderful to be with everyone this morning. It's always a joy to worship our God together. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been enjoying this cool weather, and so it's a good day to be out and about and especially worshiping our God. And I've been encouraged and edified by your participation. I hope that you have as well, and I pray that this lesson will be of benefit to you. We're very familiar with David's life, um, but especially um, we are impressed with the candor of God and revealing to us not just all the good that David did and the fact that he is a type of Christ, but his revelation of the evil David also was guilty of at times in his life. He is not a perfect man. None of us are. Only Jesus was a perfect man. And that's one of the, I think, evidences of the inspiration of Scripture that it wasn't just written in a positive light, but it even shows the hideousness of man's choices from time to time. And we especially see that highlighted in Second Samuel chapter 11. We remember David stayed home while kings usually went out to battle and Israel was out to battle and he stayed home. And that's the first thing that is uncharacteristic of a man who is described as being after God's own heart and a person who is trying to live according to the Lord's will in the kingdom of Israel. And while he was at home, while his men were fighting, he wandered on the rooftop and saw a woman who was beautiful for him to behold. It turned out it was Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah the Hittite, one of the men of David, who was out to battle. And even though he knew she was a married woman, he inquired for her and sent for her. And she came to him and he lay with her, committing fornication, her committing adultery, and she was impregnated. And that news came to him. So David sought to cover up his sin, sin that would be ultimately revealed when it came to be that she was pregnant and came with child. And so he sent for Uriah, her husband, and sought for him to go down to his house with the hopes that he would lie with his wife and cover that sin up of David's. And when he refused to do so in an honorable fashion, because the men were out fighting and he was not about to seek the comfort from his wife, David got him drunk and sent him back to his house again. And that didn't work. And so David decided to cover up his sin by having Uriah being sent to the forefront of the battle at the hottest point of the battle where men of valor were on the other side and he was struck dead with the sword. And while it may have appeared to be a simple casualty of war, it was um, a conspiracy against Uriah. And so David committed this string of sins and sought to cover up his sin. But it's chapter 12 that I especially want to focus on with those thoughts in our mind that are familiar to us about David's sin that was so uncharacteristic of a man after God's own heart. Chapter 12 begins by saying that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. 
And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for him, uh, for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of your eye of the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives from before before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son of this son. For you did it secretly that I will do this thing before all Israel before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also whom is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. Again, this shows really the candor of the Lord, his honesty with all to whom he revealed his word and the history of his people. These people weren't perfect. And it was important that the revelation of God includes stories like this because it tells us a lot about sin and it tells us a lot about man's relation to sin and how he can tend to react in a positive manner, but also in a negative manner. And it tells us about the nature of God's revelation, its purpose and how it works with man and what is man's responsibility to the revelation of God, and then it speaks to us about the great story throughout all of Scripture of the forgiveness and redemption of man who has sinned before his God. And so I want to consider especially the words of Nathan to David this morning. You are the man and convicting David of his sin and consider some various points that we can learn that are of utmost importance in this passage. I want us to notice first that David did not react immediately to the parable Nathan told him with his own guilt, but he was blind to his sins. We read in 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen that after Saul would be rejected as king, that God said he had sought a man after his own heart to be king. And in chapter 13 of Acts in verse 22, Paul reciting the Israelite history noted that God had given David the testimony of being a man after his own heart who will do all my will. So David was not ignorant of God's will. In fact, David was very studied in the Word of God. As we read in the Psalms, he delights in the Word of the Lord. He meditated on the Word of the Lord day and night. He was all about knowing God's will and doing God's will and reigning as king in that regard as being one of justice and of mercy and of upholding the Word of the Lord and proclaiming it to the people and leading them in the spiritual path of righteousness. And we can kind of see that in his very character when he responded to the parable that Nathan spoke, when he said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die and he will pay fourfold for the lamb. Restore that because he had no pity. And so I think that is a manifestation of the righteous character in general of David. 
He's a man that is after God's own heart. So when he hears a story of injustice and sin, he reacts with righteous indignation. And he's a man in power who can enforce God's will and mete out justice and punishment as God sees fit. He is fed up with the sin that he had heard from Nathan. But it's interesting that although he's a man after God's own heart, and he is so fervent in regard to God's will that he is unable to make the connection between this story and himself until Nathan himself says in verse 7, you are the man. This, this isn't even a real story. All this was was a parable. It's an illustration. I'm talking about you. You're guilty of this sin. But we might wonder why a man, as described as being a one after God's own heart, a man as righteous as we read of David in the Old Testament and as he's lauded and magnified in Israelite history and is a giant in regard to faith, even in our eyes, why he was so blind to his own sins and how man in general can sometimes be blind to their own sins. I want to offer you a few things in regard to this. I know there are several others that we could probably talk about, but I want to suggest to you firstly that a lot of times men are blind to their own sins. We don't see our own sins, even though they're right there laid before us, and it should be evident because of pride that we're sometimes guilty of. And Luke, the 18th chapter, the Lord spoke a parable about self-righteousness, and included in self-righteousness is the sin of pride, which is the seed of every sin. And we remember the Pharisee and the tax collector and the way they spoke to God. And the Pharisee in verse 11 of Luke 18 stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. This man, like David, was not perfect, yet he listed several sins that he knew he was not guilty of to elevate himself. I'm not like these people. I don't sin in this way. I'm not guilty of these terrible sins. Who would ever do what these men do? They are adulterers and unjust and extortioners, yet I'm not guilty of those specific sins, and I'm certainly not like this tax collector. And even at the very time of speaking these words, he was sinning in pride and a proclamation of self-righteousness. Pride gets in the way of us seeing our own faults. God calls us to humility in large part so that we can see our faults and correct them. But pride is going to get in our way. It'll blind us from our sins. I think we see that in Revelation 3 and verse 17 with the church of the Laodiceans and their apathy. This is what Jesus says. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. And it's similar to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 8. When Paul calls them on their pride that inhibited them from seeing their poverty. You are already full, he says sarcastically. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, us being the apostles. And indeed, I could wish you did reign that we might also reign with you. And he talks about how the apostles are treated so poorly and enduring such persecution and tribulation. They thought they had it and their pride blinded them to their own faults, which is all about what 1 Corinthians looks toward the faults of those in Corinth. And he addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where there were individuals exercising liberties in their pride of knowledge that we see in chapter 8, to the extent that it led them into sin they would have never thought they would be guilty of in idolatry. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands 
take heed lest he fall. And he mentioned that God doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. But notice he speaks about temptation in all of its kinds. It's common to man, which means you can be guilty of succumbing to that temptation as well. So humility is necessary because pride can blind us from our sins. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, when the Apostle Paul calls the brethren there to bear one another's burdens, there is evident um, in this section of Scripture of Galatians 6, 2, and 3 that pride blinded men to their own faults. When he tells them, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, he adds, verse 3, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so an obvious reaction to that call to bear one another's burdens is possibly, I'm too good to bear my brother's load, my brother's burden. That's his problem, and people looking down on him because they think themselves as better than their brethren, and that pride blinds themselves to their own lacking nature in their spirit. You are nothing and deceive yourselves. When we become guilty of such a sin, we never thought we would fall into pride can blind us to the fact. I would suggest to you also, and in conjunction with pride, is our impulse natural, I think, within every man, it seems, for self-justification. We don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be guilty. We want to be justified. But we need to seek that justice and justification in the correct places. Because if we seek to justify ourselves, that's going to blind us to sin. I think we see that in Luke 10 in the context of Jesus speaking the parable of the Good Samaritan. Notice what brought that parable up. In verse 25 of Luke 10 The scripture records that a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? He answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, notice, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And that's what brought Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, which at the end he applies not just in saying that everyone is your neighbor, but you are a neighbor to everyone, which would have convicted that man of not fulfilling the second greatest law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But notice the reason he asked that question. It wasn't honest. He asked that question wanting to justify himself. And it indicates guilt but with the desire of overcoming that guilt with self-justification. If I can kind of twist this around and suggest that my neighbor is, is these people, but not these people, it's not everyone, I'm not a neighbor to everyone, then I can justify how I've been acting toward my fellow man. And so self-justification can blind us to sin. And we can see this in various ways. So an individual who is guilty of adultery or who has a family member who is guilty of an adulterous marriage may start changing their mind on Christ's teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, which is very clear in the Scripture. We've seen that happen before, and it's because of this impulse of self-justification. We need to look past that so we aren't blind to our sins. Thirdly, I would suggest to you that hypocrisy can get us get in our way of of seeing our own sins. In Matthew 7, in verse 1, Jesus tells the brethren, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, but look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here's an individual who is guilty of a sin, but he was hypocritically judging another brother to the extent of not being able to see what evidently was a greater sin. And so oftentimes those who are living hypocritical lives or just are in an instance of hypocrisy can themselves be judging hypercritically. And we see that all the time. An individual who's guilty themselves wanting to, in connection with the previous point, justify self will blow up and overestimate another person's sins. And they're hypercritically judging another and they blind themselves to their own sins. You know, an example of this is an individual who says, I don't go to church, I don't worship with any group because those groups are all full of hypocrites. That individual is in sin themselves, but they are hypercritically judging others because of their own sin, and they're blind to their own sin because of it. And so we got to be careful of that, lest we do not see our own sins. And lastly, and again, all these are connected If we are guilty of deceiving ourselves, we will not be able to find our own sins. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows of the flesh will reap corruption. He who sows of the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. He says, Don't deceive yourself about the general and foundational rule of sowing and reaping. If you do this, you'll reap this. If you do this, you'll reap this. But sometimes, even though, as verse 19 says, the works of the flesh are evident, we try to trick ourselves, deceive ourselves into thinking something we are doing, which is obviously a part of the works of the flesh, is actually something that's right. We seek to justify ourselves in that way, and we accomplish it by deceiving ourselves. Verse 17 says that the Spirit guides us so that we don't do the things that we wish. But I don't think that we wish to do those things because we wish to be sinful people. We wish to do those things because of our own individual circumstances. And that's why we can deceive ourselves into justifying what we're doing that is obviously sinful. Alexander McLaren gives this commentary on this concept that I think speaks volumes. He says, we have two sets of names for vices. One set which rather mitigates and excuses them. And another set which puts them in the real hideousness. We keep the palliative set home for consumption and liberally distribute the plain spoken ugly set among the vices and faults of our friends. The same thing I call in myself prudence, I call in you meanness. The same thing which you call in yourselves generous living, you call in your friend filthy sensualism. That which to the doer of it is only righteous indignation to the onlooker is passionate anger. That which in the practicer of it is no more than a due regard for the interest of his own family and himself in the future is to the envious lookers on shabbiness and meanness and money matters. That which to the liar is only prudent diplomatic reticence to the listener is falsehood. That which in the man that judges his own conduct is but a choleric word is in his friend when he judges him flat blasphemy. In other words, we try to paint things as pretty when they're simply sin. We deceive ourselves when we try to justify ourselves in that way. I think that David might have been guilty of several, if not all of these. And that's why he couldn't see his own sin. Then I want us to consider in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that God's word is meant to reveal our sins to us. That seems to go without saying, but we always need to remind ourselves of this. 
You know, David wasn't ignorant about his sins. He knew he had sinned, and he knew he had sinned because he was very familiar with the law of the Lord. In Exodus 20, we see the Ten Commandments, which were foundational to the rest of the law, which was also law, and which the Jewish people knew by heart. And David had committed various sins within the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. He stole his neighbor's wife. Verse 17 of Exodus 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. He had been guilty of all of those sins. And he didn't have an ignorance about those sins, but he couldn't see them in his own life. And then he reacted to Nathan's parable in the way he did, knowing those men's sins in the parable were sinful. What he did was sinful. And intellectually, he knew the sins of murder, of covetousness, of theft, and of adultery, but he didn't see him with them in himself until Nathan said, you are the man. And then in verse 13, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. But it's not that he was ignorant that he had sinned, and now all of a sudden he is knowledgeable of his sin. But he was making the application to himself. He was coming to the terms with the facts presented and directly attributed to and applied to him. What we've got to understand is that's what God's Word is meant for. It's not meant to be read and applied to us. It's meant to be read and applied to Jeremiah, to me. And that's each one of our responsibility. God's law will do nothing for us if we don't read it and study it and hear it with the understanding that it is directly written to me. The purpose of God's revealed law is ultimately to show us what sin is. Notice in Romans, the seventh chapter in verse seven, in a discussion of the fact that they had died to the law to be married to another, which is Christ, he clears up some misunderstandings of that very plain truth. Is the law sin? Verse seven of Romans seven, certainly not. And he gives the reason. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. And he gives this example. I would not have known covetousness, Paul says, unless the law had said you shall not covet. And so think about our previous point of self-deception and slapping different labels on sin so it seems okay to us. It seems like actually a good deed when in fact it is a sinful deed. Paul may have understood the concept of covetousness without the label of the sin of covetousness. And he may have slapped the label of self-provision on that for him. I'm thinking about my family when I'm coveting someone else's things, but he doesn't think of it as covetousness and sin until the law said what you're doing is sin and it's called covetousness. It's the sin of covetousness. But then I want us to notice in verse 7 as well of Romans 7, he says, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Exodus chapter 20, when it says you shall not covet, was not written to David. It was written to Israel. It was the law of Moses to the Jews. But the way David read it is you means David or, or Paul. I'm stuck on David. The way Paul read it was you means Paul. I now know covetousness to be sinful. So I know that when I do this, I am convicted by the law. Likewise, and very similarly in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 8, the apostle Paul writes about how the law is only good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this it's not for a righteous person, but for the lawless and subordinate, ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, murders of fathers and mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. And if there's any other thing contrary to sound doctrine and according to the gospel, glorious gospel that was committed to my trust. What he's saying there is that the law is intended to show the sinner his sin. 
It is meant to tell Jeremiah that he is guilty of this particular sin so that he can do something about it. It is written not to us, but it's written to me. That's how we look at it. We know it was written to Timothy. We know it was written to the Corinthians. We know it was written to the Romans, so on and so forth. But it was ultimately addressed to me. And it was to show us what sin is so that if we are guilty of it, we can be saved. As Luke 5.31, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, now, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A person goes to the doctor and has a blood test not to reveal the disease of another, but of himself. And that's exactly what God's word is for. And we need to read it in that way. We need to read the revelation of God's word and its revelation of sin in a personal manner. That it's always addressed to me personally. And that's ultimately what the law is for. In Romans 3 and verse 19 The Apostle Paul points that out with the Jews. They would agree wholeheartedly with Paul that the Gentiles are depraved and in an incredible amount of terrible sins. But we're God's people. We're okay. And he quotes a list of sins that are pointed out in the old law that are convicting whoever they're addressed to in the old law. And he makes this point in Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the world may become guilty before God. And the law of Moses was not written to the Gentiles. It was written to the Jews. He's saying that you read that, and I'm sure you know these scriptures very well. I'm sure you could quote them just like I'm quoting them. But what you fail to realize is that that's addressed to you. God is talking to the Jews When we read God's law, we have to make the application to self. And there are certainly things within the gospel of Christ which address a congregation, the way a church is to function, or address a certain group of people. But every time we read it, we read it as it is addressed to us personally. I think we see that in 2 Kings chapter 22 when we remember the young king Josiah increased in his kingship as he sought to repair the house of the Lord. And as they repaired the house of the Lord, they found a book. It was the book of the law. And so they brought it to Josiah in Second Kings chapter 22. And in verse 11, it says, When it happened, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbar the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Uh, Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people in all Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is in them concerning us. He goes on in verse 18 to show us what the Lord's response was because of Josiah's response. As for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse and tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. And he talks about how he will not see the calamity. I want us to notice what Josiah did there. What Josiah didn't do is destroy the house of the Lord. What Josiah didn't do is lose the book of the law. His ancestors did that. But when he had the book of the law read to him, it convicted him. It stepped on his toes, as we say from time to time. 
He read that as the king of Israel and that being addressed toward him and the rest of the people that he was leading. He didn't read it as something of the past. They were guilty of this. It was likely that it was being read to him from a book like Deuteronomy, which ultimately told the second generation about the sins of their ancestors and what they should avoid when they go into the Canaan land, lest they fall as they did. But it was addressed to them, and it was addressed to Josiah and the people of God. And he reacted in that way with his own guilt I think we see that in Nehemiah chapter 8 as well when the people gathered together to hear the book of the law read to all who are able to understand. And in verse 8 of Nehemiah 8, it says they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who is the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. I would suggest to you that when they heard the reading of the law, they heard it as a personal letter written to them by God. And that's why they started to mourn, because they were guilty of those sins. God was saying to them, as Nathan said to David, you are the man. But I also want us to notice what the leaders there told them to do. said, this day is holy to the Lord, so stop crying. It's not that godly sorrow and mourning for our sins is looked down on. In fact, that's encouraged by God even in the Old Testament and especially in the New Testament. They were saying that this is a day, a feast day to the Lord, and it's meant to be observed with joy. And so you've mourned for your sins, get to joy. That's what I want us to consider in the next and last point, that while we can sometimes be blind to our sins and therefore God's word is meant to be read in a personal way where we can tell ourselves you are the man and then sorrow and weep for our sins. That unpleasant rebuke from God in his word is meant to be temporary so that we can get on to our forgiveness that we can receive from him. And we see that in Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13 when David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. David, you should feel really bad, but God has forgiven you, and he couldn't have forgiven you unless I said you are the man. The sharp rebuke accomplished what it intended, not simply to make David feel bad for the sake of feeling bad, but to make David be filled with godly sorrow so that he could confess his sins and have forgiveness from the Lord. In Psalm 32, David speaks about the joy of forgiveness in verse 1. He says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And he explains, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my sins, my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How blessed is it to come to a knowledge of our sin so that it can be forgiven? And we need to understand that. Nathan was not a hothead going into this matter, but he was a man of meekness and mercy as God sent him to address David with his mercy and offer that mercy. God's unpleasant rebuke is but for a moment, but it is indeed a necessary stop on the way to forgiveness. I think we need to understand, though, that God's rebuke is 
not for our condemnation. It's that stop on the way to forgiveness. In John 3 and verse 17, Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through the world that the world through him might be saved. Likewise, in chapter 9 of Luke and verse 56, he says, the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. When he rebukes sin, it wasn't for condemnation. It was for salvation, for forgiveness. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul says it's good and acceptable to pray for all men in the sight of God because he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's added in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 in a similar passage that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The knowledge of God's will will bring a lot of sorrow upon those in the world, but it's so that they can repent of their sins and be saved, not that they should be outright condemned. The exposure of sin and the following rebuke is intended as a force to push us to repentance so we can have forgiveness. I want us to notice Romans 11 and verse 32. We're speaking of the sin of the Gentiles and the Jews and Paul pointing that out in the scheme of redemption that God has placed force in the gospel so that all men could be saved. He says this toward the conclusion of that first section of the epistle that shows all need forgiveness. He says, God has committed them all, Jew and Gentile, to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. You know, sometimes we want to commit others to disobedience or wrongdoing just so that we can prove they're wrong. God proves us wrong so that he can make us right. We always need to understand that, not just in God's relation to us, but our responsibility to each other in pointing out sins. We do that to bring each other to repentance and therefore the forgiveness of God. And that's exactly what God's doing for us. But I want us to understand that he had needed to commit them all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And the implication is, They needed to know they were guilty so that they could know they have a need of forgiveness. He can't have mercy on the one who's not knowledgeable of his sin and willing to repent of it. Ignorance of sin must be rectified in the teaching of God's law and the rebuke of that sin. Otherwise, or or in other words, you are the man, as Nathan said to David, in order for forgiveness to come. In the 19th Psalm, the psalmist writes about the law of the Lord and how beneficial it is to us and how effective it is. And in verse 11, he continues with that theme, saying, Moreover by them, that is the judgments of the Lord and those things in the law, moreover by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And he says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Secret faults are not the faults simply done in secret, but done in a way that the person who committed them is ignorant of them. They're secret to the man who can know his errors. Well, the man who reads God's law can know. It's meant to expose our sin so that then we can be moved to godly sorrow, repent, and receive forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul demonstrated this. We read 1 Corinthians, and there's really not many good things to be said in that letter. It's a hard letter to read, if you will. It's written to a disobedient church full of immorality that needed to be corrected. Yes, they were saints, but they weren't right with God, which is why Paul wrote to the Corinthians the first letter. And he addressed that in the second letter in chapter 7 when he said in verse 8, Even if I made you sorry with my letter, 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. I rejoice not that you were made sorry. It's not to make you feel bad just to feel bad, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, 
not to be regretted, for the sorrow of the world produces death. And you know, we need to understand that about God's law, but we also need to understand it in the same way our last point is to be understood. God's law is meant to be read in a personal fashion, as if it's addressed to us. Forgiveness is the same way. It needs to be viewed personally, and it needs to be individually sought. We read God's Word so that it can uncover our sins and rebuke us of our sins as a necessary stop on the way to forgiveness, but forgiveness isn't offered to a crowd. Forgiveness is only offered and given to individuals, and that's why when we think about forgiveness and the need for forgiveness and the way God forgives, we need to view it in an individual way. These are things I must do to receive forgiveness for my own sins. And it doesn't matter if every person in the congregation is in sin and every person except one in the congregation does what is necessary for them as individuals to receive forgiveness. I will be the one left in sin if I do not do the same. It's an individual matter. And Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, it says the soul who sins shall die. Son doesn't bear guilt to the father, father of the son. It's an individual thing. And if sin is an individual thing, then it stands to reason that the forgiveness of sin is an individual thing. In John 3.16, Jesus said that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We need to be careful about reading that as simply a blanket statement. While it is, God so loved the world, He did this. It also should resonate with us as individuals that we need to come to that obedient faith to be forgiven. And the very context bears this out in verse 14 of John chapter 3. Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And it's a reference to the time in the Israelite history when they were in the wilderness. And because of complaining, God sent upon them venomous serpents And when those people were bit, they would die unless they had looked upon the bronze serpent that God commanded Moses to erect. And there was only one bronze serpent in the entire great camp of the Israelites, but each individual would only be healed if they themselves traveled to that serpent, the place where that statue, if you will, was prepared for their own salvation physically. Only they would be healed if they traveled to that place themselves and looked on it with their own eyes. Someone couldn't take a picture and send them a postcard. Someone couldn't look on it themselves for them. They had to get to that place by any means necessary so that they, with their own two eyes, could look on that serpent. It's the same thing with salvation. Only you can do the things necessary. Only Jeremiah can do the things necessary to receive salvation for his soul. So we've got to have, I think, the heart of Joseph and David Remember in Genesis 39 when Potiphar's wife sought to take advantage of Joseph and lay with him, this is what he said. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's me and God. He would have been sinning against Potiphar. He would have been committing adultery with his wife. He would have done the same thing that David did. But he said, how can I sin against God? It's between me and God. It's as if the only one who exists on the planet earth is me and God is the God of the whole human race, which only includes me. How can I sin against God? And this is how David reacted in Psalm 51 after he was told by Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12, you are the man. 
He tells God in Psalm 51, verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He didn't only sin against God. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation. He sinned against his family. He sinned against the kingdom. But he sinned against God first and foremost. It's it's me and God. That's how David saw it. The one I sinned against was God. And if that's the case, then the one who will receive forgiveness for this sin, only me, must seek it himself. There's a real danger in reading Scripture always in the general way. Because there are general verses speaking about general forgiveness offered generally to all people like John 3 and verse 16. There's verses about the abundance of God's grace in Romans 5.20. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That's true for everyone. Grace can abound much more than our sin. It's true for mercy in Psalm 103 verse 17. It says the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. There's an abundance, an overflow of mercy, and that's available for all men, and that's a wonderful thing. God wants to impart His mercy. God wants to be gracious to us. In Luke 17, Jesus speaks His law of forgiveness and its abundant supply. When He commands His apostles, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. That was His law for them, but He practices His own law, which means He's willing to forgive us however many times we need it. We've got to repent of it though. So grace is abundant in supply. Mercy is abundant in supply. Forgiveness is abundant in supply. However, if the individual who needs it does not access it, he will not be forgiven. He will not receive mercy. He will not receive grace. So for example, when we have our public prayers each and every assembly, the individual rightly so prays within that prayer for all of us on all of our behalves, and we say amen. He prays for forgiveness of our sins. That does not apply unless you are praying with Him and unless you repent of those sins. We must access it ourselves. It is an individual matter between us and God, and so we ourselves go to Him. Revelation 22 and verse 17 says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's offered to all. The individuals have to come to it with the abundant general supply of grace, mercy, and forgiveness for an individual to not seek that forgiveness himself in a personal encounter with God is to like dying for thirst sitting beside a pure stream of water simply because you didn't stoop down to take a drink or like dying of hunger in the middle of a grocery store because you didn't grab the food, purchase it, and eat it. But so many are going to die spiritually because they didn't receive the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy that's abundantly supplied to them simply because they thought it was a blanket thing that covers everyone no matter what. But God doesn't forgive the world. God doesn't forgive crowds. God doesn't forgive churches. God forgives individuals, which means it's up to us. It's my responsibility. I think we see those three points in the story of David's sin and the rebuke of Nathan in that parable being applied to him, you are the man, that we can possibly be blind to our own sin, so we need to make sure we're not guilty of that. 
and that the Word of God is meant to be individualized and applied to each of us as a person. And we need to read it in that way. And that forgiveness is an individual matter as well. And it's our responsibility as individuals to go up to God in prayer and penitence to receive that forgiveness that only can happen from God to us. If you're here this morning, the same thing applies to you. Don't deceive yourself about your sin. Recognize your sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means you. And understand that the only way you can be forgiven of those sins and become a child of God is that you obey the gospel. No one can be baptized for you. No one can be baptized for you after your demise as some practice. But you have to obey the gospel. And God has given you this time to do it. Not the person next to you, not the person across from you, but you are given this time. And if we can assist you in obeying the gospel this morning, we encourage you to come forward. And if there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, the invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing.